Hello, Plumesters. It's Melanie. We just have a few quick notes here to share at the top with you. At one point in the discussion, our wonderful featured writer, Lisa D. Chavez, mentions an equally wonderful previous featured writer, and we just wanted to note that that was Cynthia Sylvester. Also, please note that this episode contains discussion of sexual assault, trauma, and PTSD. Thank you for listening, and now, on with the show. Dear writer, have you ever felt done? Like, why am I doing this? Like, who cares? I've been in that dry place too often. Maybe you've even stopped writing. I have. I stopped writing, sort of, for many reasons, but one was because I was really confusing publication for writing. They're not the same. myself up as a failed writer, even when I know that I'm not, when I know I'm also very privileged in many ways to have the holy grail tenure track job, to be published, to publish two books of poetry, though so long ago, does it still count? That's how my inner voices are, and all of ours seem to be so harsh. <laughs> Looking at my career through the lens of professionalism, I fear I'm a failure. I haven't published a book in 20 years. I'm perennially at work on the same never-ending projects. I compare my career to others and I find myself failing. I haven't won big awards and I don't know how to network. I haven't been writing anything that will neatly fit into a line on a CV. So I tell myself then that I'm not writing at all. I forgot the most important thing of all. Art is us. Our creativity is how we engage with the world and with our experiences. When we make room in our lives for art, we're making rooms for ourselves. Another plume featured writer, Jennifer Schaller mentioned, publication did not immerse me in the art of writing. Understanding the way writing fit into my life guided me back to my art. I had to find my way back to my art too. And just as we writers learn to separate our editor selves from our drafting selves, I had to learn to put my professional self on hold. I tell my students to turn off their worries about publication when they're drafting or they're likely to get stuck, but I didn't even listen to my own advice. And sometimes, to be honest, I simply couldn't write at all. Maybe you've had months like that or years even like I have just trying to hang on. I suffer from PTSD and what I was working on was difficult. A memoir about growing up with a mother who has spent most of her life struggling with untreated bipolar disorder and about the trauma I suffered growing up in Alaska, the kind of trauma too many people know, unfortunately. Sexual abuse, racism, poverty. Sometimes, and I mean this literally, even my own words triggered me. I can't tell you how to keep up the energy for the fight. I only hope that you can do it. And you may be trying to squeeze in writing between caring for your kids or your elders or your pets, between a nine to five job or two or three jobs, or even one that looks like a dream job but sucks you dry. But if you can, if you can give yourself five minutes to write something down, something you saw that day, an image, a bit of a character's voice, 
do it. Take those five minutes, save it up. You'll find when you look back that you've been writing because that's what happened to me when I started this letter. I've not been writing, I told myself, so what am I supposed to offer to other writers to plume? But then I started looking and I realized in the years that I hadn't been writing, I'd actually done a lot of writing. What I had been doing though, didn't fit into a CV or an academic notion of what professional writing is for a professor. I was writing science fiction and fantasy. I was doing this because when I was a child, I told stories to myself to self-soothe, stories that helped me hold on in a scary world where I was often neglected and alone. I still do that. And finally, it occurred to me, I'm telling myself these stories anyway. What if I write some of it down just for myself? I didn't think it would become anything. I just wanted to do something fun. I wanted to play. I wanted to feel as if I was being creative. So I had to find something that took me back to the beginner mind, something that I could do that I wasn't good at, but I also didn't worry about being good at, because that's another way we can get stuck by working only with what we're good at. Well, I knew I wasn't much of a fiction writer, especially when it came to plotting, but you know, what the heck? No one was gonna publish my NaNoWriMo novel, which is National Novel Writing Month, for those of you who may not know. So why not just write it? It was fun. I turned off the editor entirely. I thought, who cares if that's spelled wrong? What if it's a cliche? Who cares? I'll fix it later. Write the words you need for the day. I did really ridiculous things that professional-minded me wouldn't do, like a suggestion I found on a NaNoWriMo forum. Stuck in your plot? Add pirates or monkeys or ninjas. Believe me, my literary mind found this absolutely absurd, and I was so resistant to it that I decided I better try it. I added pirates. It was ridiculous and fun and honestly kind of worked. So my thought is, if something seems fun to you, or maybe if you're, it seems fun, but you're resistant because it's a little bit silly, go for it. It may help you get unstuck. And if nothing else, maybe you've had some fun for a few minutes with writing. That's what I did. I didn't look at this stuff at all. I didn't think about it much. And in fact, as I said, when I was writing this letter, I still thought I haven't been writing. What am I going to tell people? But I also got a new laptop. And when I was moving things from laptop to laptop, I realized something. There were two entire novel drafts in there, an outline for an unrelated trilogy that had scenes, whole scenes written, and a novella that I did eventually publish. I hadn't been writing is what I told everybody, but I had. It just, I wasn't writing what I thought I should be writing. And I was doing something that my professional lens told me didn't count. So that's basically how I got back to writing. I found something compelling in my own stories. They soothed me as stories had soothed me as a child. In my fantasy world, evildoers were punished and my characters may have suffered trauma, but they came through it and found ways to survive and to flourish. I held on to my characters' lives and my own life felt too hard. For me, going back to the beginning, to be a beginning writer by trying a genre I didn't normally work was really helpful. It's like an exercise I had success with in the classroom. Switch genres. Write your story as a poem, your poem as an essay, your essay as a play. Then go really wild into beginner creativity and pleasure. Make it another medium, a painting, a diorama. Okay, so if you're a visual artist, that part might not be so much play, but maybe the writing part will be play. It'd be part of your beginning artist vision. 
people are usually successful with this. Some people, uh, including Sam, I believe, has um, gotten something entirely new out of this exercise, um, from a new poem to a play that became a story to anything like that. But it's not really that I wanna talk about the publishing because that's not the important part. I'm much more focused on how to get yourself going again when you're really, really stuck. Find something you love and engage with it creatively, even if it's not writing. Nourish your creativity. And sometimes play in one media will spark creativity in another. For example, the drafts of these novels, which I don't even really want to call them because it sounds pretentious to call them drafts of the novels when they're just bits and pieces yet, but whatever. My novels, I was thinking about them and suddenly decided that I needed a map. So just like I was a kid, I spread out a bunch of paper on the table and I drew an enormous map of the world. It took me forever. And sometimes I thought, uh, why am I doing this? Because I really could be writing instead. And instead I've worked on this thing for hours. Well, here's why apparently. In the hours that I made that map, I envisioned the world with my characters lived in climates and traditions and people and developed so many more stories for them. If this work is ever published, and at this point, I don't even want to think about that because that's not my point, this map will never be published with it. It's not a very good looking map, but I love it. And I taped it to my closet door and I see it when I wake up and I go to sleep and I fall asleep telling myself stories of that place, just like I did when I was a kid. I guess it's the work that I needed to do. I'm back to childhood, perhaps telling me stories, but at least I'm enjoying it, I'm writing, and it's worth it, and it's play, and it's fun, and it's serious. I'm not talking about don't ever worry about publication, but I am saying right now, I'm not even worried about what I'm writing and what's gonna happen with it. It's too fragile and it's too fresh. That will come later, but for right now, I'm working, I'm writing, and that is worth it all. And that was Lisa D. Chavez offering you this month's letter of encouragement for Plume, a writer's podcast. Um, as many of our listeners know, Plume's goal is to build an inspiring collaborative community of women and non-binary writers supporting you wherever you are on your creative writing journey. You can find us here. You can also find us on Patreon under Plume, a writer's companion. We're your hosts, Samantha Tatenko And Melanie Unruh. And on today's episode, we're excited to talk with Lisa D. Chavez. And so before we jump into that interview, just to give you a little bit about Lisa, Lisa has two published books of poetry, Destruction Bay and In an Angry Season, and had poems anthologized in Florin Canto C, U.S. Latina Poets, Camino del Sol, 15 Years of Latina and Latino Writing, and elsewhere. Her essays have appeared in Arts and Letters, The Fourth Genre, and other magazines and in anthologies, including The Other Latina, Writing Against a Singular Identity, and an angle of vision, women writers on their poor and working class roots. She grew up in Alaska and now lives in the mountains of New Mexico with a pack of Japanese dogs. She is currently the director of creative writing at the University of New Mexico. Thanks for coming today, Lisa. We're excited to talk with you. Thanks, I'm really glad to be here and honored. <laughs> I love uh, hearing the letter for the first time because uh, I think we've mentioned posters that uh, whoever's here reading to us their featured letter, Sam and I are hearing it for the first time. So it's really, it always kind of hits us. And I mean, I wrote furious notes here. So I'm trying to even think which question to ask. I have so many. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you talked about, you know, I think there's this myth of 
the MFA degree or any creative degree leading to that dream job with the tenure track and teaching other people how to write. Um, but then it turns out, you know, the job may, as you said, kind of suck you dry. And it also at the same time might look down or look critically on the type of writing that you end up moving into once you're in that position. So I'm wondering kind of how do you balance those two? Like, how do you put the effort that the job requires and that, you know, you still feel passionate about it, but at the same time, how do you find that balance of working on your own writing and navigating that? And I think the answer for me is a quick that I that I didn't that I didn't understand how to balance that. And I think um, a lot of us don't. And that might mean balancing something beyond an academic job, too. Um, but we do tend to think that you're in an academic job, you've got it made, you're going to have all these connections um, and your career is just going to keep going up. But um, in reality, um, and for anyone that teaches, so I know that you'll understand this, too, I mean, it's to give all we need to to our students is often overwhelming in and of itself. And sometimes we're just overloaded as teachers and having to grade, you know, and all of that. So I basically saw my job as teaching, which is a part that I love. I don't love the rest of academia, but I do love teaching and decided that that's what I was getting paid for. So that's what I had to concentrate on. I didn't realize that I was kind of doing in my own creativity in a lot of ways until recently, I think. So I don't think I've done a good job of it, but I do think it's conversations that we need to hear from other people who are in different lines as well, too. Like, how do you find balance in your life as a writer? How do you find a space to nurture your creativity? And I'm still struggling along with everyone else, and I'm, you know, near 60, so I hope that for younger writers, it won't be too depressing to say, I still don't have it figured out. I hope instead that's encouraging. (laughs) I love that you you mentioned in your letter that you, you know, that, um, that activity of switching genres. So uh, listeners, the first poetry class I ever took was maybe 10 years ago now with Lisa. And that was an exercise that she had us do in that classroom. Um, And what I like about hearing it now is I've been thinking and listening and talking to a lot of people about like, how do we trick ourselves into like being creative again, where we can get caught in a lot of those things that you're talking about. And what I love about hearing you talk about that exercise is the kind of flipping of that where it's not a trick anymore. It's just play. Like, how do we play again? Like, how do we just draw maps and be excited about it? How do we write about pirates? I have no question attached to this. I just was excited to hear you talk about that. I was really happy to hear about the maps because uh, I definitely have done that before. And it wasn't a world map, but I made a, I made up a college campus and I made all the buildings and I named them all after my friend's last names. Like this is the, like the Tatango gym or what, I don't remember what it was, Sam, but, um, and I, you know, and yeah, that map will probably never go anywhere. It's on like a piece of pink paper and it's like my terrible drawings of little buildings. But I think, I don't know, I think it's good to visualize what you're working on and just kind of get out of the writing space to think about it in a different way. So I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who does something like that sometimes. I just think it was really fun too. And I, you know, from 
trying to write drafts of novels, which I am so far from an expert on, I don't really want to give any advice at all, except to say that that was the part that became kind of appealing to me, was the idea that it was kind of like a map, too. And then I knew what the final destination was, but I didn't know what happened in between. And so some of the stuff that felt more like play instead of work was a low-cost way for me to be involved with the project when I thought, I don't have any writing that I can do right now. I can't think of something, but I'm still engaging with the ideas. So I'm, I love it. I'm glad you made a campus map. <laughs> Speaking of different genres, in this month's Digital Plume, um, readers have access to both poetry and prose. Um, in one of the poems, The Fox's Nonce Sonnet, we get this line about a fox. So she, this is the fox, draws back her paws, licks, appraises the river's dangerous skin, looks at me as if to say what purpose these stories that make fable of my life. Many of the poems um, use fables and mythology and magic. We get a devil dog, we get a little red riding hood reference, we get a dark jaguar, we get Persephone, and um, I'm guessing it's Kitsune. Uh, we even the the metaphor about the hunter with the fox pelt, like they feel very um, mythical. Um, this is really different, for example, than the poems that are in your collection in an angry season, um, which tended to be more about like quote like the life versus the fable of life. So how how did this way of telling come about? Which I guess is another way of asking how your own writing has evolved toward this direction. I have loved stories and fairy tales since I was a kid, and it feels like they tell us some sort of universal truth where everything has else has been stripped away just to the images of a story, um, the bits of a story. We don't know, for example, you know, more about like Little Red Riding Hood behind, besides what we're told in her particular stories. And yet it, they're often so archetypal and they're often looking for something that seems really valuable to me. So when I was putting this together, I consciously thought, I kind of want to put some of the more magical stuff because um, that's different than what I've published a lot. And I was kind of going in a different direction with that. And I think what I was really interested in was about the ways that we're silenced and about the way our voices are taken away or our narrative is taken away from us. And all we're left is with like the bones of a story that may not really be about us anymore at all, if that makes sense. Um, and I see that I'm, that is what I was doing in this grouping because I also sometimes think, don't we need to escape from the rest of the world? Not that the fairy tale world is pleasant, <laughs> but at least the fairy tale world is not our own necessarily. That's so interesting that you said that about silence, because so many of the poems for me are so much about power, right? Like about taking power back in in these um, various moments. So that's really, really interesting. In this digital plume, your prose work looks directly at trauma, particularly sexual trauma experienced as a woman. Compared to the poems, which look at myths and stories and are often playful, full of mischief, the prose looks at sexual assault pretty directly. Can you tell us about this choice as a writer and how do you navigate writing into these spaces, both from a craft level and from a mental health level? I think that what we're seeing kind of in my selection of poems for Plume, and I don't know that I intended this, but it seems quite clear to me now, I was including some of the things that I was writing that may have 
a serious topic, but I allowed myself to play with and I allowed myself to tell a story or maybe tell a story indirectly through a fairy tale or something. And I think that was time when I wanted to play as a writer that rather than being, you know, reminded of trauma, because as we all know, we do get tired of carrying that weight. <laughs> but the other thing is, and this is something that I've been trying to talk about more, is um, the effects of writing about trauma on mental health. I did a panel at the Associated Writing Programs Conference um, last time around that eventually did get published. And it was talking about when you shouldn't write. Because what I discovered for myself is I'm a person that suffer, suffers from PTSD. I'm a person that suffers from severe unipolar depression, it's really easy for me to get lost, literally, in my own words. And to be just really blunt about this, sometimes when I was writing about my own sexual assault, I was so triggered by it that I literally could not continue. And so I have told people sometimes to forgive yourselves for that. You have to. You, what Your mental health is always more important than anything else. It's your life, right? Uh, so you need to know when you can approach a topic and when you couldn't. So And when you can't. And I had a really hard time writing about sexual assault. And I had a harder time. And this brings us something to say that Sam had mentioned in her letter about we get all these voices of people telling us that we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't write about trauma. We shouldn't write about whatever. And I have heard too many times that, oh, we've already heard that trauma story. I mean, I got rejections that said things like, huh, just who really wants to hear this story about rape? And I was yeah. just like, I don't know what to say about that. That's not a craft comment, right? That is... Um, something else, or people think all trauma is interchangeable when it's not. So sometimes you can't do it. But the, one of the pieces that I included started as a Me Too monologue. And that is when PTSD exhibit one. And it, I had a hard time with that. But at the end, after weeks and weeks of writing, we poured on a stage performance, a number of women talking about our experiences with sexual assault, and we raised money for women's group in Albuquerque. But I had to force myself to keep going back to a piece that was profoundly difficult for me. I'm proud of what I wrote in the end, but it was indeed hard to do. And part of it was to get back to the point that I made in the letter was I began worrying too much about publication just when I was trying to write that, because even though most of my sexual abuse and violence towards me has happened many, many years ago, I still can be triggered by it as many people with PTSD can be. And so I started thinking, no one's going to want to read this. Why am I struggling to write yet another rape story when somebody's going to say, well, we just had a rape story. Huh? So we just had a story about racism or whatever. So I can't come to any wisdom from all of this, except for it was hard won, the fight to be able to write about something that mostly happened to me years ago. Um, and I had to take very long breaks. And that's probably why I have such long gaps in my writing and publishing career as well, because it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And the rejections are hard anyway, without piling on extra reasons for a rejection to be difficult. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, um, we had Lisa come to my university this last year. And I remember when you read, I think you read that Exhibit A poem at that reading and students were, I could tell that so many of our students had never heard anybody read work like this before. And we were getting private chat messages from them. This was all on Zoom that were asking all of these questions about writing into trauma 
that that it was clear like oh because they've never been at a reading where where writers are writing into this or talking about it or even you know it was like I could tell it cracked something for them that this was something that they were wanting to write about and we're not really sure how and so I guess a a follow-up question and this is what advice do you have for for writers who maybe are trying to write into their own traumas that maybe um you know are just kind of at the beginning of that or maybe frozen by that yeah, that's a good question too. And I think one of one of the things I would say is the lesson that I, you know, probably you have told you all have told students this too. I have said this a million times, but I seem to forget for myself. I said, don't worry about what you're going to do with it afterwards. Don't worry about who's going to read it or who in your family is going to read it or your friends, or don't worry about who's going to publish it or not. Just get a draft on the page when it doesn't harm you to do so. That's the part that I'm adding now after my thinking about PTSD, because there are some times that you you can't do it. And if you can't, don't beat yourself up for it. But if you can, I think separating yourself from worries about what will happen if I show this to someone, what will happen if I try to publish this is the first step. Write your truth. And the thing I really want to say, because it's really important, I think, is the, when I have managed to talk about those few things or write about the things, the kind of feedback I got was always good. It was always, thank you. I wish somebody had told me this, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. And so to me, part of that just means that it's hard for us as writers to talk about our real deep struggles. I mean, we've been told, I think, in some ways, and trained even in academia, like, here's the text on the page, nothing else matters. Well, everything else matters greatly, hugely. You know? So keep going with it. But give yourself breaks if you have to, too. And know that there are people that not only want to hear your story, but need to. So our next question, this is a little bit of a teaser. So we have a Patreon for Plume. Um, You can sign up for as little as $2 a month, everybody. And one of the things that we had on there was a poll for whatever our next roundtable conversation might be. And the one that was selected for the roundtable that will happen in August is um, writing about real people. Um, And I thought that as I was reading your lyric essays, one of the things that I noticed was that Um, none of the assailants in your memoir, for example, are named, um, and that there's, um, you know, is this, is this an intentional thing? And then there's also, you mentioned about writing about your mom that I know is in the background of a lot of these pieces. Um, how do you navigate the writing about real people part of the, of the memoir work? I'll answer the part that seems easier for me to answer first, which is the part about um, writing about real people and choosing not to use assailants' names. And the reason I did that was um, for a couple of reasons. One, sometimes I didn't know their names. Sometimes I didn't know their names because I have like blocked it out of my memory or I literally didn't know their name, but also because on the people that I did remember their names, I didn't think they deserved to have their name out in the world. That was basically it. I was like, I mean, I could have like, I suppose, gone the other way and said, I wish I could name you literally and say X is a rapist. (laughs) But um, I didn't do that. And as I said, I didn't always remember names. So I didn't put them in. But there's another reason too. And this is a reason that I find particularly devastating. And it's not a cheery truth, but it is one I believe is a truth. It's like, in a way, it doesn't matter what these guys' names are. There's a million of them in the world. There's many, many predators and abusers, and 
they can be, my circumstances may be different in the details, but they're not different in what happened. Going back to Sam's question about, you know, writing about specifically your mother, I think that's always, I think, difficult because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you use pseudonyms, right? And it's like, well, you can't really, if people know who your mother is, you know, you can't give your mom a different name and not, you know, people know exactly who you're talking about. And so how has that been, I guess, navigating that throughout your life and throughout your relationship with her? That's a really good question. And I have been um, stuck on the writing of memoir about my mother for so many years when I start beating myself up for being a failed writer, which I know I am not. But, you know, like I said, those voices get in our heads. Lately, by the way, as a digression, I'm working on doing something where every time a negative thought like that gets in my head, I add a but. So it's like, you may think you're a, negative, you're a lousy writer now, but really you've done all this and you'll do more. No, I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I've thought that I have been failed on that because I have been writing that book forever and ever. And so this is one of the things that I really was really excited about is because the Plume author for June said something that echoed with me so much. I was just blown away by with it. By it. She said, it took me years to complete the collection I've recently finished, but really there was no way this collection could have been done any sooner. It required the life I've lived to finish it. And for me, this is, I know I'm taking a little digression from this issue of writing about real people, but I needed that time because in that time from when I started writing about my mother, like way back whenever to now, when I have a rough version of a manuscript again, I have learned so much. Like I learned my mother is 10 years younger than she said she was because she just changed her age at some point. (laughs) I've learned my mother told me all sorts of stories that were not even remotely true. And then she didn't tell me some things that were. So I'm not saying we should put off publishing because obviously you can go back and you know, say, oh, I wrote that about my family, but here's memoir too about my family. But what I am saying is that if we need that time, take it because you'll really, really learn something in it. Like I'm discovering my mother as a whole new person. Regarding names, my mother is one of those people who's like, she's writing about me. I could say anything about my mother and she would be so excited because it was attention (laughs) on her. So I don't really have a problem with names in that way. But yeah, I think there are times when you can't change names, you know, because everybody knows just as you were mentioning in the beginning of this moment. So moving in a totally different direction, I wanted to, you know, I'm thinking about it's now by the time of the airing of this episode, it'll be August. People will be thinking about fall. People will be thinking about MFA programs. And you're currently the director of a creative writing MFA program at the University of New Mexico. Um, And so um, for our listeners, for those who are thinking about MFA programs, I've got two questions. One is pandemic related, which is like, given the pandemic, given what's happened, is this even a good time for people to think about an MFA? And then the second question is, what advice do you have for them, for people who might be applying? You know, I think that the pandemic question is a hard one to answer because I think, is it the right time for anybody to be doing an MFA program is always a question that only the individual writer is going to be able to answer because so much of it, you know, as we know, is about life beyond writing. Do I have enough money? Can I afford to do this? You know, will I get in where I want to go or 
all of those kind of things. So I think that an MFA is almost always valuable if you don't go into debt for it. I'm adding that because, you know, we all have been paying off student debt. And I think mm-hmm. don't get any more educational debt if you can avoid it. That's big advice for me. <laughs> but if you can, for me, it seems like a really valuable time to have the space to work on at least one project, but you'll probably have others that you start developing during this time and to dedicate yourself to writing. That's why I feel like getting that sense of playback, which I know I have not played as fitting very well with academia, but getting that sense of play and adventure and excitement about your writing is important. And it may be in an MFA program that this is the first time that you're going to have space to think of yourself seriously as a writer. And that Mm. is really, really valuable if you can make it work, if you can find the time, if you have the money, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think also as a side note, I think any creative writing class or art class is huge and people should just take them. Even if you think like, I really want to take an art painting class. I have a feeling I'm going to suck. I can't even draw, (laughs) but I don't care suddenly because who cares? I know I'm not good at it. Just try it. And so Also for people who aren't ready to go for an MFA, but want to just be thinking about their writing life, take a creative writing class. I've seen some people do some amazing things. Like I had a woman in my class who was retired and she said, I'm just writing for my grandkids. And it was like amazing, brilliant. And then she went places and she finally said, I don't think this is for my grandkids anymore. (laughs) I "I don't think so either. (laughs) Um, But maybe because she was writing for her grandkids, she was writing better than if she was thinking about writing for publishing, you know? Yep. And she wrote some really difficult and beautiful things. And so you never know what's going to come out of it. So I say anytime you can get like in a community of other writers or artists or play with art in some way, it's worth it and do it. And then for the MFA, again, I'm going to say don't go into debt (laughs) um, if you can avoid it. (laughs) That's a big if I know. (laughs) But many programs, you know, do take people with... um, give them assistantships, even if you are grossly underpaid, it is still some sort of support or with fellowships or things. But the big thing I think is think about what you really want out of it. And I can't guess at what everybody wants out of an MFA. Some people really do want it to be the professionalism jump. I will get this. I will publish my books. I too will get a tenure track job. And for some people that happens, obviously it did for me. I was really, really lucky. But it often doesn't happen that way, especially now, I think. And so in that case, it really has to be something that you're doing for yourself. So make sure it's going to be a kind of program that will work for you, which means, you know, are there people there who will take your writing seriously and that you can work with? And that means students and faculty. Unfortunately, you don't always know until you're there, but at least you can try to look at places that seem like they are what you want. Do you want a really supportive place? That was what I wanted. And unfortunately, I didn't get. (laughs) But I didn't know I was supposed to look for this kind of thing. So look for a place that you would be comfortable living for the time that you have to do the program that you can afford and that you feel will nurture you as a writer. We're closing in on the end of our episode, and we just have a couple more questions for you. So First, are there any writers or literary magazines or small presses that you want to plug and give some attention? One of the things I just going to say is I, I have no shortage of writers that I work with that I think are really amazing. And some of them I never got the opportunity to work with, but I saw them in the MFA program. 
pay attention to young writers, pay attention to queer young writers and writers of color and non-binary writers and writers who are poor or working class or whatever. There are so many people right now who are doing such amazing work and challenging the way we think about creativity and being human and justice that it's actually really exciting. You want to give any former student shout outs? There's too many. Okay, no problem, no problem, no problem. It's like na- asking um, a child to name their, or a parent to name their favorite child. It's like somebody's going to get upset if they get named or not. <laughs> One of the places I do want to give a plug for is Blue Mesa Review, and that's partially because I'm the faculty advisor right now, but it's more than that. It's because I've had the privilege of working with some really amazing writers, many of whom went on to like work with Plume, let's say, um, or who have done a number of other things and are writing now and in jobs and doing all sorts of things. But the fact is Blue Mesa gave young writers a place to learn what a literary magazine is like, learn how the whole process works and produce art that is really amazing and produce these really beautiful images So, and issues. So. Yay, Blue Mesa, and I'm all about student-run literary magazines in general. My job as advisor is to worry about money details and back off otherwise. (laughs) Sounds great. And our last question that we ask every one of our guests is, what is the best advice that you've ever received as a writer or that you've given yourself? And obviously, you've already given us lots of good advice today. So feel free to just repeat one of them from earlier. If there's one other piece of advice that comes to mind, we'd love to hear it. My best advice for writers is to remember this. You're important. Your stories are important. And there is an audience for those stories. So keep working on it. Keep telling your truths and believe, because it's true, that there are people that want to hear your words. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you want to read Lisa's work, you can find it in this month's Digital Plume, available on our Patreon at the $5 Prickly Pear level. Or if you just want to support our work and hear your name read on this very podcast, you can join us for as little as $2 a month. Again, you can find us on patreon.com under Plume, a writer's companion. We also have a weekly writing check-in, which we unofficially call Plume Zoom, um, but don't tell Zoom we said that. And each week we meet online and we talk about writing challenges and triumphs, talk a little bit about our lives, and we take some time to write together. And if you feel so moved, you can share with the group. It's really casual and a lot of fun. And we've been doing it for over a year now. And it's a really great group if you'd like to join. And that is available also at the $5 prickly pear level on Patreon. You can find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, we're at Plume for Writers. And on Facebook, we're just Plume, a writer's companion. And now it's time for our monthly Patreon shoutouts. We couldn't do this work without all of you. So a big Plume thank you to Kristen McGuire, Cassie Jones, Julia HJ, Arlena Ash, Cynthia Sylvester, Ashwini Bassi, Roxanne Doty, Karen Zirk, Maggie Ramirez, Jennifer Crone, Donna Mascolta, Kathy Paul, Christina Jovovich, Tara King, Felicia Caton Garcia, Caroline Tompkins, Amy Wallen, Patricia O'Connor, Sandra Valley, Crystal O'Keefe, Cassie McClure, and Joe Crawford. Thank you all so much for your support. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back in your ears in just two weeks with another exciting roundtable episode. Happy writing!